Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to this week's Strength Rehab Podcast. This week, we're lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Eric Helms. And if you do not know who he is, you've been officially living underneath a rock. I just would like to remind you guys, if you're liking what you're hearing, please give us five stars and share with your friends. We would like to have a larger platform so we can share all this great information to people that are willing to listen. Enjoy. We're on here. All right. So go ahead and introduce yourself for us. Yeah, no, pleasure to be on. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, my name's Eric Helms, and I am... Uh, I have my couple hats on, even though on camera, if you're looking, it looks like I'm wearing one hat. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, uh, a research fellow here at the Auckland University of Technology uh, for sports science, specifically related to strength and physique sport, which is my area of expertise. This is also where I did my PhD. Um, so I have um, a, a pretty long academic background in this area. But what brought me into lifting was my own personal interest as a natural bodybuilder, uh, personal trainer strength athlete. Um, and I've been coaching, uh, bodybuilders since we started 3D muscle journey in late 2009 and, and powerlifters as well. And I've been a personal trainer since I started that in Oh five. Uh, and yeah, I just found that I fell in love with, with the iron. Um, and that included the intellectual pursuit of it, um, and helping others pursue it and uh, then the science of it. So, so just a big part of my life and you could argue it's probably the only part of my life, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's what I do. So like, what about, you know, the whole fitness journey? Did you learn the most or what are you most interested about? Like, why did you study what you studied? Mm. Yeah. So I, I really got involved academically. Um, I would say it was when I started my bachelor's, which I finished in 2011 um, and prior to that, I had been competing in bodybuilding and, uh, the contest prep process actually going through and getting on stage and competing, um, while ultimately very strange and, uh, and, 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 and weird, uh, you know, sometimes just as a little aside, I'll, I'll like do a presentation and I'm like, here, and I'm an academic. And by the way, that's a picture of me. And I was like, what the hell? Like, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm in. I'm in, uh, you know, dark stage tan in a speedo. So um, the joke is often that, yeah, I'm, I'm an academic, but I also moonlight as an African American stripper. So, um, yeah, hopefully that's well received. I don't know. I just keep saying it. I think it's funny, but I basically I am acknowledging the fact that this is weird, you know. Um, but a really interesting th thing that comes out of getting on stage is that you're pushing yourself uh, not just to your physical boundaries, but to your emotional boundaries and your, your kind of boundaries of your, of your willpower and it expands your self-efficacy. It's very cool. Um, so you're, you're starving, you're tired. Uh, you don't really want to do it anymore, but you do. So it teaches you to keep the goal, the goal. It, it teaches you to not catastrophize and kind of stay in the moment. Uh, it teaches you to just kind of hit pause and ignore the way you feel and just move forward. Um, it could teach you bad stuff too, like, you know, how to have an unhealthy relationship with your body and, and your food. So those are things you have to learn and integrate and, and deal with and decide if it's worth it to you. So anyway, uh, I found that to be a very transformative experience. 
um, that made me realize I was perhaps a little more capable than I thought initially. And that was almost addicting to try to move myself forward and build self-efficacy. What was the why behind your lifting career? Like what made you start lifting? Yeah, good question. So originally for me, it was an outlet. I was going through some some stuff in the my early 20s uh, and eventually landed on bodybuilding and lifting weights in general, which was a much more you know, positive potential outlet than most people in their early 20s find uh, to, to cope with things. Um, and I think, you know, it, it didn't start as the, the probably the best way to approach it. It was kind of masochistic feel and uh, almost like a, an anger outlet. Uh, but very quickly as I, you know, dealt with that as adults have to and, um, and move forward, it became something very positive in my life. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think and it's, it's been there since that. It's been there since then for other times in my life where I have had, you know, emotional trauma or, or challenges uh, that, that have gone on that, you know, we all experience, of course. So it's been um, a really useful way for me to process, express, and, uh, and kind of deal with the day-to-day to have that, that time carved out and that almost like goal that is almost always there and never-ending of, you know, just trying to improve in the, in, in the, in the weight room. Being at like where you're at now and then looking back on your training career, is there any like cringy pitfalls that you fell like victim to? Oh, I mean, I don't know if I would say they're, they're cringy, but they were, I would say they're, they're expected based on the, the, the information we had access to at the time. Um, my motivations from, you know, where I started, um, my almost childlike excitement with getting involved in it. Um, and the fact that I, I didn't have a PhD at the time, you know, mm-hmm. I think, um, one thing I really don't like to do is to talk about kind of like bro science and, 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 you know, dunk on the people who don't have it right. Because I mean, we all ostensibly have the same goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously if you knew better, you would do better. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I did things like, oh, I don't. I don't think I can combine fats and carbs because that'll immediately turn into body fat. I did things like eating, you know, two grams per pound of protein. I did things like setting alarm clock and eating every two hours. Um, (laughs) I did things like having, uh, you know, like a pill case, the size of like, you know, like a a football that that had all the supplements that 95% of them were just burning a hole in my wallet. Um, (laughs) You know, eating cottage cheese at night. Um, not that, I mean, some of these things, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're just super tropey. So, um, yeah, I did, I did everything you could expect someone who started lifting in the early two thousands and was reading magazines to do, uh, which was, you know, the version of, of crappy fit influencers we have now. So, yeah, but, um, but no, I, I think, um, I honestly think that's a really critical part of it because it's, um, it comes from, I'm really, really excited about this and I'm going to go seek out information. I'm going to try it all. And I think it's a, um, if you have good enough awareness and you're paying attention and you can, you know, be open-minded, uh, that can, although obviously you do a bunch of stuff that's unnecessary and potentially something you go, Oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. Often it just gives you just this vast kind of entrance into this new exciting world and uh and it's a good experience and, and leads you towards something that is hopefully better um i do hope now in this stage of my career now 
16 years later, that they might come across something that I've created uh, and rather than, you know, some like 20 inch arms guns program that doesn't work <laughs> or, or is just unnecessary volume for someone who's, you know, 18 has been training for six months. But, um, you know, I, I think to wrap it all up, yes, many cringeworthy things, but um, very understandable. And I, I wouldn't judge myself for, for being there. What would you consider that has been the toughest part about your 16 years of lifting? Probably injury. I think, I think that is one of the biggest challenges that most, whether you're a bodybuilder, powerlifter, weightlifter, or whatever, injury is one of the more challenging things. And I think it has multiple elements to it. You know, like if you've ever seen an injured animal, which is sad, but as soon as the pain is gone, if they have a lingering thing, they just work around it. They don't care. Like there are, there are videos online of dogs with two legs who are just going batshit crazy out of happiness. Um, and because dogs don't think about what do I have compared to someone else to the same degree that humans do that, that kind of relative suffering, uh, or the, the storytelling about something that's real is, I think a relatively unique human experience, um, and potentially harmful. So not only do you have a torn rotator cuff or a slip disc or whatever, but you also have now, oh my God, I won't be able to do this X, Y, Z thing. Or you, you, all the stories you tell yourself about it are, are really challenging. And it's difficult not to catastrophize and spiral. So I think um, the times I have been injured, it's been a experience of trying to be a little more present, uh, trying not to put any more meaning seeing what happens um, and not, you know, overreacting and making it worse and just taking it day by day. Um, and I think that is a, that's something that the benefit of that is that when you come around and back from it, you develop a lot of gratitude for what you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I had uh, bilateral uh, labral tears and a hip impingement that eventually required FAI surgery. Um, as I tried to work around it and see what I could do and couldn't do for three years. And mm -hmm. I finally got the surgery and being able to squat to depth pain-free regularly afterwards um, was something that I just cherished. And now I, I appreciate, I think less about, not that I don't care, but back then I was just like, what can I do to increase my squat? And I squat to get stronger at squats. But now, now I, I squat and I'm like, I can squat. You know, it's like, this is amazing. So I think that type of experience is really good. Um, it teaches you a lot of things, but in the moment it is really challenging and it can be the thing that uh, you will hear people why they don't lift anymore um, <laughs> yep. or, you know, why they stop making progress. Or, I just don't do that movement anymore. Or now I just train for something else. Like uh, now I, I just do like uh, a little bit of, you know, machines to, to keep, to keep my muscular fitness, but I don't lift mm -hmm. heavy anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it makes people, and that may be the best decision for them. That's fine. You know, if they have to think about their own risk rewards, but I think it forces a crossroads and any crossroads you, you end up having to think, grow, evaluate your values and go from mm -hmm. there. Now you started a, a journey into the strongman world. Is that correct? Yeah. So I've, I've done a little bit of strongman. I, I, I would say not nearly as much as far as, you know, weightlifting or powerlifting or bodybuilding, but yeah. Well, what was the, the, the draw? Because I mean, if I'm being honest, like I see like the Atlas stones and stuff like that, and I wouldn't touch it with a six foot pole. So I was just curious <laughs> what, what interests you. 
probably the exact same reason why you wouldn't get near it is why I wanted to do it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like uh, it's, it's cool to be able to lift, you know, barbells and, you know, carefully machined objects that have evolved over the last 70 years, arguably, right. or for 70 years to be lifted perfectly. Um, but I think there's something like if you're strong, you're strong, mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, the idea that, okay, I have to figure out how to lift this perfectly smooth and round. Of course you put tacky on your arms and, and chalk on your hands and stuff like that object into my lap and then lift it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy that. And I also think it's, it's a good message we need in modern time. This is not why I do it. I don't do this to, to help people understand their body is more capable than they, they think it is. That, that'd be a, a lie if I said that it was. I do it because <laughs> I like it, right? I think it's cool. Um, but I was surprised just how many people were like, oh, can you round your back and pick things up? I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> so I think uh, there, there's a lot of people who are just super, super, uh, I would say kinesiophobic. They're afraid of like any spinal rounding and, uh, and, and I'm not saying like just start rounding on purpose everywhere. But I, I, I think, uh, I think moving things, objects, doing it quickly, doing it while running, doing it under, under pressure. Um, that's the real origins of strength sport. If you go all the way back to uh, strongman uh, origins and you look at like the Highland games, or if you look at, you know, track and field and the movements there, if you look at um, vaudeville shows, you know, what is an interesting thing the crowd will be surprised that I can lift? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, you know, a Lico bar. It was like a carriage going over your legs while you support a board or, or like, you know, three people on, you know, or, or some crazy globe object. So I think um, I'm really fascinated and intrigued by almost anything that kind of falls under the umbrella of lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always thought Olympic lifting was something that was, highly technical, elegant, and impressive because it required both extreme strength, but also speed and also precision mm-hmm. and also end range of motion while doing all of that and timing and rhythm. Um, so that's some, that's why I pursued that. Strongman is uh, a kind of another iteration of that, of just applying brute strength with an element of oddity, uh, mm-hmm. novelty, and then needing to have strength endurance I remember when I first saw strongman competitions, I was like, okay, so the barrier to entry is like, you have to be an elite a power lifter. And then it's like, do it for reps or, or lift it up and then carry it around. And I'm like, that's crazy. Um, so I couldn't do it early on just because their strongman was a lot less accessible. I remember in 07, the first time I even considered doing a strongman comp, the, some of the events, well, well first off, there was two divisions. There was uh, lightweight men and heavyweight men. I don't think women were even competing yet. I'm sure they would allow them. They just didn't, there was no interest and there was, you know, so they, and, and the heavyweight men were anything over 275 pounds. Lightweight was anything under 275 pounds. And I was like, okay, I'm 220 <laughs> and I feel like I'm not small. So this is like 50 pounds under the lightweight cap. Um, and I think the, like the, the lowest entry division you could have, one of the, uh, the lifts was 500 pound deadlifts for reps. And I was like, sweet. So that'll be one. <laughs> at the time and uh and that's only if let me pull sumo which they don't okay cool so i'm not going to do this sport because i can't do the sport you know uh but now they have like novice comps they have well i'm also stronger uh they have different levels of entry it's, it's a lot more ubiquitous and varied for people so it's a little more accessible 
um, a little more organized and you can actually find places to train the equipment. So anyway, it was just something I wanted to give a shot to. I still haven't done a full strongman competition with like four or five events. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a couple like dual events, but um, that is on my bucket list for sure as a strength athlete. Nice. Are you currently doing any research at the university? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, So I'm a, I'm a research fellow and pretty much the main thing I do is supervise master's and PhD students and carry out research on the side. So it's very targeted. Um, so PhD students and uh, master's students here at AUT, especially in our lab, uh, the Sports Performance Research Institute New Zealand, uh, their thesis is almost all research-based. Uh, in fact, it is all research-based. Uh, there's classes for the first year of your master's, and then you have a one-year thesis. And if you get into the PhD, it's just a proposal, and then a couple of years to do research. So uh, what it means to supervise a PhD is to help a, an early career researcher become more experienced and help them with that process. So every single one of those PhD students, of which there are six and I have one master's, is doing research, and I'm helping them with it, So which is cool. Um, and then I also have a project uh, that I'm currently about maybe halfway through, um, which has been you know, interrupted by COVID. So we shall see how that goes, uh, is uh, looking at different uh, rates of weight gain and how it impacts uh, body composition changes while lifting weights. So yeah, I'm involved in a fair amount of research. What like So what are the things that you didn't realize that came with doing research or conducting research? Because I feel like that's such a, uh, it's not talked about enough. Yeah about the process of doing research and getting research? Yeah, I, a couple things. Just how much of a pain in the ass it is. Um, and then how much I would learn from the process. I think when I first started thinking about research, when I came out to do my second master's here, I was thinking about how can I you know, get the answer to a useful question that we don't have the answer to. And that's 100% the reason why you do research, that don't get me wrong. Um, but when I first wanted to come out, I remember writing my research plan. I was like, sweet, we'll do a dunk tank. We'll do MRI and then we'll do a uh, <laughs> cycle ergometer. And then when I had this thing and then, you know, my supervisors who experienced researchers went sweet, that's going to take all day. Ethics won't approve it. No one will be able to do it. We don't have half that equipment. Uh, and you only have a year to do this. By the way, don't you realize a crossover study, even if it's two weeks, you have to have a washout. So that's another four weeks and you have to bring them back and you're going to have dropouts. And I was like, sweet, sweet, sweet. Okay, how about just skin folds and emit that pole? Like, okay, we can do that. Sweet. So it was, um, it was a very different uh, reality. And I think uh, it made me become a little less judgmental when I saw studies where like, well, why didn't they do this? It's like, well, maybe they they only had $500 to conduct the study like most studies. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the logistical ba- uh, barriers were something that uh, I didn't anticipate this to be as high as they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it made me really understand the field and how often people are just doing the best they can. Um, and just how much of, I don't want to like sound self-congratulatory, but it's doing research is, uh, it takes a lot of effort. There's a good chance not a whole lot will come out of it. And it's pretty much just to add to the body of knowledge for everybody. So um, it's not very sexy, you know. And uh, so I had to kind of appreciate it for what it was, learn it. But I think part of the, I guess you could say, the, the philosophical underpinning of research that really helped me outside of it was realizing 
really, what do I have to do to actually know that something did cause something? And to be confident that that was the, the relationship. And it made me much more circumspect when going like, I think pause squats are working well, you know, like, well, dude, like, what are all the other things you're doing? What else changed? What's going on in your life? So um, I think it, it made me understand uh, the value of creating more controlled environments as a coach or an athlete mm -hmm. and being able to actually connect dots and just how often I see people plateau or go down rabbit holes that don't lead them anywhere uh, because they're, you know, making associations that aren't real. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our pattern recognition software, if you will, as humans is very good, but it, it kind of over filters or, or as I should say under filters um, mm -hmm. and, and selects patterns that, that aren't, aren't actual patterns or aren't causational at least. So yeah, I think it's something that uh, modified my, my coaching. So Hey, if I want, if I have time and I have buy-in from the athlete uh, after I set up what I think is reasonably good based on what I know, I would like to change one variable at a time to see an outcome connect dots. And uh, that really, it seems like an inefficient way of starting because, you know, someone comes to me and they go, Oh, it's Eric Helms. Like he knows science, right? Uh, I want to have him do all these different things because he knows how to do them. Like I want to do RPE and I can get a velocity tracker and can we have a flexible periodization program? And why don't we have a top set and we can do uh, maybe uh, back offsets after that. We can hopefully get the pat phenomenon. You know, how do we do, I want to do daily undulating periodization. And I give them something that, you know, of course is, it's not like devoid of science by any means, but it's informed by the stuff that I'm very confident in the realm of science. And then as simple as possible while still being as optimal based on what I know. And then I only change one thing. And they're like, well, if you just gave me all the good stuff at once, like don't hold back, I'd make so many gains. And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. You know, instead I need to figure out what your individual response is like and what your barriers are and what the individual solutions for you that are best are going to be. And while we make it this slow start, it's going to snowball. And if we can, if I can get that buy-in from you and I can get you to stop kind of intellectually program hopping and nutrition hopping everywhere, then we might actually get to see uh, how, to, how to best figure out it for you. So anyway, that's probably the, the biggest thing that came from research. See, that's key. That conversation that you have with that theoretical, the hypothetical patient or client that you just had, I think a lot of people are afraid to have that. And what they do is the exact opposite of what you'd like to do mm -hmm. is they throw everything up front because they feel like, let's say we only change one RPE from each of the exercises, they might feel like they're, for lack of a better word, half-assing their coaching for this client. Yep. Yeah, you're paying me. I've got to change something every week. Yeah, yeah right. right. Uh, not only that too, especially once you become in a, well, once you get to a position and I'll speak from, from my experience, uh, versus, versus working with patients, but like if you're a coach and you get the opportunity to work with a high level athlete, that's scary. Um, mm -hmm. because they it, like, especially if, if they're more well-known than you are well-known as a coach, they are more likely to be thinking of, I'm going to give this guy or gal a try, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it's not like, oh, wow, this, this guy's been doing amazing things as a coach. He'd be do, obviously doing an, an enough good things as a coach when they come to you in the first place. But a really well-established coach has a little more freedom because clearly they're doing something that's working, or at least that's the perception. And they're more likely to give you the time and energy to build up that rapport and uh, an experiment and figure out what is best for you. Uh, but if you're you know, on, on the up and come and you get someone who is viewing you in that way, or at least you're, you're afraid they are, uh, that they're giving you a try, 
your fear-based decision will be, let me just throw everything at them, right? But the reality is with high-level athletes, the, the, the first concern is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you make small changes. <laughs> like They've done something to be an elite athlete. Don't screw that up. Um, but, you know, I think probably the, the worst position to be in would be like, hey, I've got eight weeks till Worlds. Like, I, I want a new coach. And you're like, oh, great. It's no pressure, right? <laughs> um, so I, and, and a lot's riding on that. So I think those initial conversations, setting expectations, establishing the relationship, making sure someone understands how you operate and the philosophy behind what you're doing is far more important than what methods you use. So in that hypothetical scenario, I get someone who's eight weeks out from Worlds. I go, hey, I'm not going to change a whole lot from what you're currently doing because that's what got you to Worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I think we can make X and Y changes here and there that I just, you know, probably are going to be better and are, you know, low risk, low reward, you know, to change Mm -hmm. might help. But then next year's Worlds, we've got a lot of time to work towards that. And I'm thinking X, Y, and Z. What do you think? How does that sound? You know, Mm -hmm. so that's the type of conversation where I'm trying to set their expectations of the benefit of us having working together is, is a relationship and relationships build over time. Mm-hmm. So we need to look into the future rather than just into the next couple of mesocycles. You being a coach and you being able to coach all these different, different training outcomes. What is your favorite to actually train and coach? Yeah, I really enjoy uh, coaching bodybuilders. Um, they have, a pretty specific time domain that they're working in. Um, and it is demanding, but it, you, you can see the progress week by week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see what they need to do, how to get it done. And there's a lot of, I find a lot of joy uh, in working towards helping them integrate it into their lives. Um, because you can get from point A to point B in bodybuilding and get shredded um, a lot of different ways. Some of the ways are likely to have you go, I'm never going to do that again in my whole life. Um, most are likely to go, I need at least a few seasons off uh, or, or one off, or maybe if it's my first time, I'll do it twice and then I'll realize that I'm still jacked up and I'm not any bigger, but uh, okay, I should take some time off. And then you realize, oh, I needed that. Um, but there's a lot that goes into it um, and a lot of stuff that people don't expect. So um, you can optimize the X's and O's of bodybuilding, nutrition, and training, but neglect your, the rest of your life. And that's incredibly common. So uh, a big part of, of 3D Muscle Journey and why we started and what we do was based on helping people find a way to progress in their sport without alienating their loved ones or you know, sacrificing their health, mental or physical. Um, and trying to find ways to integrate the, their lives with bodybuilding. So uh, looking at it from a sustainability perspective, you know, some people will look at that and go, oh, so you're, you're sacrificing performance for this other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, well, with that mentality, you probably won't be competing in five years, you know? So I, I look at it as how do we create successful bodybuilding careers? And that means it has to be sustainable, you know? So this has to work for, for your life in 10 years. Um, so I think that's a really interesting, uh, process, uh, not just cause it's challenging, but also because it looks a little different for every single person. Um, don't get me wrong, like working with a power lifter or a weightlifter, figuring out what is the excess movement they need or, or that stuff is, is cool. But, um, there's so much more potential life disaster that goes into bodybuilding that requires you to have more domains that you have input in with the mm-hmm. athlete, um, that they might come to you for. 
that they're asking for help in. And then you might have experience in. Um, so you, you have a lot more opportunities to provide um, quote unquote apps outside of the box assistance to the, to the, to the competitor. Do you, being so busy right now, do you have any body composition or bodybuilding goals as of right now or not really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I never get so busy uh, that, that I'm not an athlete. You know, that's, um, that's something that has always been kind of very core center to me. I haven't missed a planned training session more than maybe once every couple of years. And it's because the gym got closed, COVID <laughs> happened, missed a flight, you know, um, or I got hurt or something like that. And it was unexpected. Um, so the, uh, the goals I have are, 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 are many, um, because I am like a multi-sport strength athlete and, and, and also physique athlete. Um, but I, yeah, the goal for 2021 is I'm trying to qualify for uh, Commonwealth champs. Fingers crossed it happens. It'll be in November and that's an IPF competition. So Commonwealth of the countries like that used to be part of the British empire. They didn't revolt like, like the U S so that's um, like Canada, obviously the UK, uh, New Zealand, Australia, India, um, a lot, a lot of countries. So it's a pretty big comp international, um, not as, as hard to get into as worlds, which I couldn't qualify for. Uh, but I do have a, an outside shot at, at, a, at Commonwealth. I can probably hit the qualifying total, uh, but in New Zealand, there's a lot, there's a, there's a, there's a handful, if not more than a handful of better lifters in my weight class. So it depends on who's applying, how many spots we have, et cetera. But at the very least, I want to hit the qualifying total and hopefully it will actually happen because uh, it is coming to, to New Zealand. So that's, that's my goal for 2021. But as always, I'm trying to get uh, more yacked. Uh, so that's, 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 that's a goal because I do plan to get back on a bodybuilding stage and I'd like to I'm still trying for my WNBF pro card. So that's in my opinion, the, the highest, Uh, or most prestigious, largest, best well-ran um, natural bodybuilding organization. I was hoping that you'd be able to demystify the whole peaking process of bodybuilding. I always ask people, and they always mm. they all have their different yeah. rituals to say. You right. know, like yep. uh, for for example, he told me a good friend of his who's actually a professional bodybuilder. Yeah, he competed in Olympia. Yeah, so he competes, and it was diet soda and Snickers bar. Snickers. <laughs> makes them yep. vascular. So I was just curious, like what was your approach when you were getting ready for your show, let's say two weeks out? So you need to find a South African hen, right? <laughs> uh, then on the blood moon, it needs to be sacrificed. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So no, I love that you use the word ritual because so much of uh, bodybuilding as it's not only is it a niche sport, it's an odd sport. Um, so it's not like it has a tremendous amount of, of well-structured research behind it, uh, or professional S and C coaches working with people, things like that. Um, so a lot of it is just handed down, uh, and traditional, um, and tr traditions are, you know, there's a saying that success leaves clues. And I think people think that means that I should emulate what successful people do. Mm -hmm. Um, but that is kind of a misunderstanding of what types of clues success can leave. And this goes back to uh, that whole anecdote, you know, how well can you even tell if those things do that? So if you take a look at someone who's competing at the highest level successfully at bodybuilding, you know, at the very least what they're doing is not preventing their success. So it's not harmful enough 
to, to get in the way of them, of them being successful. But that's really all you know. Um, you can't say that the reason why the best person is the best is because of what they're doing because the thousands of people who are copying them are not the best. So, I mean, you could take a really cynical view of that and be like, that only works for one out of a thousand people. Well, so it's, it's almost like a negative, but that's not, that's not accurate either. It's, uh, I think, I think you have to pay attention to tradition, see what exists, learn what people are doing. Uh, but then also you then need to follow up with, with logic, physiological principles, uh, and then, if possible, actually do some research. And there is some research now on bodybuilders and peaking, um, and there's a few things we know. So uh, the first thing we know is that uh, stored muscle glycogen, which is where we store carbohydrate, uh, if that is as high as possible and you're also well hydrated, you're going to have larger-looking muscles. And that's actually been found in a recent study uh, back in 2019, uh, was it 2020? Anyway, it was in the last couple of years and they, they compared bodybuilders who did a more aggressive carb load to not aggressive. So it's a cross-sectional analysis and they showed judges uh, silhouettes and they rated the ones who did uh, carb loading more aggressively as having a more muscular silhouette. Um, so that's interesting. So um, we know that, that, that that's a piece of it. Um, we know that being dehydrated also makes you look smaller. Um, that's, that's, I would say it's a physiological principle. We know that the hydrated muscle is smaller, so we would think it would make you look smaller. But we also know that bodybuilders cut water, not always, but sometimes, and more in previous eras to try to look leaner. Um, We also know that folks who compete like in the Olympia or in IFBB Pro League take a crap ton of anabolic steroids. Mm -hmm. Um, And anabolic steroids will often have hormonal side effects. Uh, Your estrogen can get out of whack. They can be they're androgenic anabolic steroids is technically the way they're classified. AAS uh, I threw an extra a in there, but AAS, um, which means that you can have a, a lot of water retention depending on what drugs you're taking. So it may be that that trade off makes sense if you're an enhanced bodybuilder, uh, but it might not if you're a drug free bodybuilder. And that's certainly been uh, the observations that I've had uh, that cutting water doesn't really do much for you. And if you take it too far, it can certainly harm you. Um, so, yeah. So over the last, geez, I would say 20 years, different contest prep coaches have started to bring a little more of a uh, evidence base to this. Uh, actually, even before that, there was, although it was slightly misunderstood. Um, so it's been evolving over and over and over time. And I would say that probably the most common practice in natural bodybuilding elite these days is some form of carbohydrate loading, mm-hmm. whether that's loading earlier than tapering it off, uh, lo- loading late pretty aggressively because you didn't load earlier uh, or taking multiple weeks to kind of eat up into your show and eliminate the deficit and bring your carbs up and then carb load much less aggressively because you're not nearly as depleted uh, in combination with not manipulating water too much. um, And then typically keeping your, your solutes like sodium and, 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 and potassium in check without letting them get crazy. If anything, maybe adding a little bit more, more sodium to increase the pump so it can affect blood pressure um, is generally what most people do. And that is pretty much what I did. So the way I used uh, my my strategy, I like it to actually base it off of observations. So uh, I was using uh, refeeds during my, my contest prep in 2019. Um, And I would take pictures and video and confer with uh, my colleague, Alberto Nunez, part of 3D Muscle Journey, who's also like my, my second eye, my coach for that, that comp. And we'd look at when did I look my best compared to my refeeds. 
Um, so as I got leaner and leaner and we could actually get a better sense of that, we built my peaking plan based off at what point from when I carb loaded that I look my best. Cause some people you add carbs, they immediately look good. Some people, while they're, we think integrating that carbohydrate as muscle glycogen, uh, they're also retaining a little more water. They look a little blurry, but bigger. And then they start to clean up while they're still holding onto the muscle glycogen. So there's a delayed effect. Uh, this is what my, uh, my colleague, uh, Cliff Wilson calls your load look. So, uh, and that, that can be, that's probably the, the biggest source of confusion among people when they're trying to figure out, am, am I full? Am I flat? Am I peaked? How do I look? Is that, um, some people can have the exact same carbohydrate loading protocol. And if they did nothing and just followed it and waited, they would look very similar, but the intermediary period, one can just be looking better kind of linearly. And the other one gets worse and then starts to look gradually better as they clean up, if you will. And to integrate those carbohydrates, more time passes and it tapers. I'm a little more in the second category. Um, I load, if I'm really, really flat, I start to look better, but then I kind of look a little spilly and then it comes down. So my overall approach uh, was to load within the last three days and kind of taper it down, but never being low on calories as I come into the, uh, the show, uh, maintain my normal water input and uh, have a little more water and a little more sodium on game day um, and kind of have a, a medium level of, of carbohydrate that is, you know, pretty middle of the road uh, on the day of the show. I love the idea that you essentially did mini peaks moving up into your show. So you, you just basically took out all the doubt. And so when it was game day, you had a formula and all you had to do was just implement it. And I would say that uh, removing some of the doubt is a, a non-negligible secondary benefit because it could be total bullshit that maybe I'm not seeing, but some of the most stressed out manic bodybuilders, mm -hmm. um, tend to consistently look bad. And I think it has a lot more to do with their stress levels right. and that may be having some visual effect on them. And, you know, I could speculate about the mechanism, but I think, well, sometimes it's just that they freak out and do something and change it um, and then look worse. But a lot of the times I, I think it, it might even just be that they are, are really just not keeping their shit together. And that mm -hmm. is having some kind of physiological effect that has visual ramifications. So having confidence and going, look, I did this last week and the week prior and the week prior to that and I consistently look good on Saturday, I'm going to look good this Saturday is a great feeling. And it's something that um, I think really can keep you calm on game day, which is important. Would part of that speculation lead to the fact that if you're stressed, your digestive ability just goes down the tubes? Yeah, that, that could be part of it. Um, you could also see higher levels of cortisol, which mm -hmm. can lead to water retention. Uh, you can see it messing up your sleep, which can also mess up a whole lot of other things. So, <laughs> Um, there are, there are a number of pathways that I, I could see someone being just super, super stressed, uh, not, not dealing well with that, you know, uh, or not, not looking good. So, yeah. You know, it's just, um, I'm getting more and more into the sport of bodybuilding because it's just, at least from the coaching aspect of thing, I don't know if I had the discipline to continue the, like, like you said, the willpower. <laughs> I mean, I can stare at food and I'm like, I think I'm going to eat you, but, um, just the whole idea of just the psychology behind the sport and like how you as a coach have to cultivate it and keep it down this path without them burning out, which is it was where the art comes in, you know? Mm. Um, it's the same thing with training, you know, um, like when we first get clients, like, you know, coming on for the first day, they always like, I want to train seven days a week. And then it's like, okay, let's put the leash on. Let's start yeah. maybe three to four. 
because you are not even training yet, you know? Um, and I guess that, that would be my, my, I guess my final question. And it has to do with you learning as a coach. What were some things that you didn't have when you first started coaching, but now you are somewhat of an expert of? Mm, good question. You know, experience is kind of a, a cool thing um, in that it is often positioned as something separate or different or maybe even against science, like the experience for science debate. Um, and I think I might have had some of that early on. But I think realizing that every time you have an athlete who has a unique experience, and almost all of them do, and a unique solution, um, it, if you're paying attention, and if you are doing some of the things I mentioned earlier, like changing minimal number of variables at a time, it builds another tool on your tool belt. Uh, I saw this, this, I tried this, and this worked, so that when future problems come up, you're able to pull from that a little more intuitively uh, and you're li likely to have a greater chance of success or at least knowing where to start with the person uh, based on having gone through that problem solving logic before. So I think to some degree, just having that, um, that repertoire is very important. And also the, the ability to communicate that is, is something you build over time too. Cause the first time you try to solve one of these problems, it is, trying to solve a problem and it looks just as messy as if two people go into an escape room and they try to get out, you know? Um, but if you've, if you've been in a very similar escape room multiple times, you can keep the other person calm. If it's their first time, uh, you can tell them, look, there's generally how we find these problems. You know, that phone's probably going to ring at some point, you know, we get up three clues. Like we got some time. We're going to be okay. You know, like got an hour on the clock. Um, there, there's a lot of drawers over there. I guarantee there's something in one of them, that, that type of thing. Right. So, I think uh, experience in and of itself is something that every new coach doesn't have and that every experienced coach can have. And can is very important. So I think uh, the thing that I was not great at initially that I've become probably an expert at now, and it goes right back to what I said before, uh, is being able to pay attention and track progress uh, and monitor. Um, I think you can learn a lot of new skills, tools, build spreadsheets, do all that good stuff, learn how to do video recordings and all kind of the accoutrement of, of being a coach. Uh, but your bread and butter, the most important thing when it comes to being uh, a coach with an athlete, besides, you know, caring about them, being passionate, being a good communicator, which could be a total own podcast, is being able to measure, are you making progress and tell when you're not? And it's your diagnostic capability. And I think that that's really important and it's more challenging as someone becomes a more advanced athlete. So I think I've become better at that. I have more ways to assess it, uh, more ways to think about it uh, and more ways to manipulate it and gauge it. So that's probably something that's, that's taken me a long time to integrate concepts and have experience and try things and fail. But uh, yeah. I would say like, so, you know, coming into this conversation, I knew you were a wealth of knowledge, but to see it happen in front of me, this podcast is everything I was hoping it to be. So thank you very much for coming on, man. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. I really, that, that's a very kind thing to say. So my, my, my honor.